The following episode of Ottoman History Podcast is part of an ongoing series on the history of gender in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series, as well as many other series available for streaming or download through iTunes, HipCast, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. And I'm Chris Great. And we're here today in Istanbul with Dr. Liat Kozma, Senior Lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, Dr. Kozma's work focuses on women and feminism in the modern Middle East, uh, marginalized women in 19th century Egypt, and medical discourses on sexuality in the Jewish issues and early 20th century Arab societies. Uh, so our topic today um, will be sexology in Hebrew and Arabic in the early 20th century. And we'll talk about how new discourses and practices around sex and the body remade women, men, and social life in Cairo and Tel Aviv from about 1880 to 1930. So uh, Dr. Cosmo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, maybe we could just start out by asking you um, what may seem to you like a simple question, but uh, for myself and, yeah. and our listeners who may not um, immediately know, uh, what is, when you say sexology, what is, what is that? And who, who are its practitioners or its theorists in the parts of the world that you deal with? Well, sexology in the beginning of the 20th century, early 20th century, is the, the science of sex. It's an assumption that something that we used to guess about, speculate about, talk about in religious discourse or whatnot can now be analyzed and understood by science. And its its, tra it's beginning is traced to Weimar Germany or pre-World War I Germany, uh, in which several medical doctors, many of them, not all, but many of them were either Jewish or communists, were... Um, Many of them were involved in the gay rights movements, abortion rights movements, uh, were, were now theorizing about sex, um, handing out questionnaires, interviewing people, and trying to promote uh, real knowledge about sex. The assumption was that now the human mind is capable of knowledge that, that earlier generations were not, and now we can promote this knowledge for the better of society, it's part of it was also eugenics, um, the assumption that we can improve the human race by selective reproduction. Sure, yeah. Part of it was progressive. We can now allow gay rights because we know it's part of nature. We can scientifically explain it. Now, this project is part of a general trend. It's going to be published in a book on sexology and translation. It's looking at how this knowledge that was produced mostly in Central Europe immigrated to other parts of the world. So that's really interesting because what you describe as a particular science of sex that comes from a place and time, right? Mm -hmm. And a politics, these kind of um, these communities in uh, in Germany mm -hmm. that have certain political projects, etc. Um, and then you know, in your work you describe how this kind of new knowledge that's both medical and sort of psychological, emerging sort mm -hmm. of psychological knowledge about the mind mm -hmm. um, comes to places like um, like Cairo and Tel Aviv. So could you tell us a little bit about that process? 
well, what I'm interested in here is both the mobility of people and the mobility of ideas. So one starting point is two men who were educated in Berlin at around the same time. One of them, Faraj Fakhri, returns to uh, to Cairo from um, from his education in Berlin at the beginning of the 20s. And the other is Avraham Atmon, who was born in Odessa, grew up in Tel Aviv, and is studies medicine in uh, in Berlin in the late 20s, coming back to Tel Aviv in 31. So this is one way in which um, knowledge moves by two human carriers. But it's also texts, texts that are being read and translated by medical doctors in both communities who uh, who then translate part of it to to Hebrew or Arabic, mm-hmm. but also author their own texts based on what they, they, they learned and also based on this very basic assumption that now we can understand sex better because we have the medical science that enables us to understand it better. Can we maybe discuss how this is related to some of the other uh, specific scientific movements of the time, namely the theories of evolution and psychoanalysis, I think are two of the main ones that come to mind. We had a previous podcast Mm with uh, Marwa Shekri about the translation of Darwin's ideas into Arabic in in Egypt in particular, but also in the Levant. Uh, This seems to be the same time period. And and are are these linked uh, scientific movements or are they at odds? How is sexology situated in this context? They're, They're partly linked which is very, for me at least, it was very difficult to comprehend in our post-World War II world that that eugenics and social Darwinism could be seen by some people as progressive at that time. So some of these doctors are talking about uh, premarital uh, sex consultation. So this one has several elements. One of them is the fact that many Jewish and Muslim couples married virgins. So doctors were saying you should know more about sex before starting mm, marriage. That's interesting. And the other, uh, another issue is, is the question of eugenics. So they were charting uh, family trees in order to see whether they have uh, similar um, diseases in the family, mm. including alcoholism, prostitution, homosexuality, these drug addictions, these were seen as uh, inherited diseases that could be eventually eradicated. So sexual problems could be prevented by sexual, premarital sexual consultation, but also um, social ills could be eradicated if people with similar social diseases in the family could be prevented from intermarrying. So this was a very powerful eugenic moment. So that's so interesting because what you're describing is the taking up of a knowledge that in Germany is associated with sort of um, social Darwinism, with eugenics, with sort of emerging theories about race Mm -hmm. that's then taken up by um, doctors and, and practitioners in parts of the world that are often, let's say, the the object or the sort of you know, are sort of mm-hmm. disempowered by those discourses, right? Um, you know, places like Cairo and Tel Aviv are considered often to be sort of sexually deviant and to have, you know, to be the the sort of object of scrutiny in this mm-hmm. way. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how doctors from these parts of the world, right, um, you know, sort of the non-West, mm-hmm. uh, interacted with these ideas which were caught up in 
conversations about, you know, biological superiority, etc. So just to clarify, what's happening in Germany is both uh, eugenics has taken us both social progress by progressive, self-proclaimed progressive, um, human rights-oriented, uh, gay rights-oriented doctors. They're taking eugenics in order to make the society better. And also uh, by, of course, um, Nazism. But to your question, I think they are, they are taking it in, in very different ways. So as I see it, the most dominant reaction is to prove that we, that we are better, that we're not what others are are telling about uh, are saying about us. So uh, we can practice uh, self restraint. Uh, that is not, of course, the, which is European and Western, and not Eastern or Jewish. And we, uh, I think, the entire discussion that I traced both in Arabic and in Hebrew about masturbation. Now, masturbation is not seen as uh, a disease anymore, but still. Uh, just uh, eliminating masturbation is one way to become more masculine mm. in the Western model. What I find most interesting about Faraj Fakhri, this Egyptian doctor who uh, came to, who returned to Cairo in uh, from Berlin in the early twenties, that he's engaging with with these stereotypes and with his history mm. of, for example of homosexuality in the Islamic world. So he's he's looking instead of saying, no, we're not homosexuals as many as Dorzevi, for example, is showing. Oh yeah. That how many uh, how the Ottoman and Arab and uh Afsanen Ajmabadi is showing about Iran, we're not homosexuals mm. um and so on. Faraj Fakhri is saying um that's not true. I've been to um, clubs in Paris and London and in Berlin, and these these things are practiced there, but anyone who knows Cairo can tell you that such things are happening here as well. And he's referring the readers to Abu Nuwas, and he's mm. referring uh, the readers to classical um, poetry, and he's saying, like every society, we have it too. So we're not more deviant than others, and we're not more progressive than others. That's a natural phenomenon. So he sees that as sort of a shared time, right? That this is something that both in the West and in a place like Cairo has to be uh, eradicated by the science of sex. No, he doesn't think it should be eradicated. He thinks it should be acknowledged mm. as something natural, something natural not necessarily to be celebrated, but to be recognized and understood and deciphered by science. Um, the, um, the German um, sexology is highly connected to the gay mm, rights movement. Interesting. And um, the argument is that it's out there in nature and therefore it's natural. And from here, the conclusion must be... Um, the decriminalization of homosexuality. He's not going this far. Faraj Fakhri is not talking about criminalization or decriminalization of sexology, of, uh, sorry, of homosexuality, but, but he is talking about it as part of um, repertoire of, of human sexuality. So it's interesting to think about how uh, 
you know, doctors and scientists in particular geographies and locations try to situate themselves into what is, uh, you know, ostensibly a universalist uh, uh, form of knowledge or universal mm -hmm. discourse uh, of science. Uh, I want to ask more about the case of uh, the doctors writing in Hebrew that you mm -hmm. worked on because you have an interesting situation where, I don't know, Jewish doctors in Germany will be situated in, in one sort of sociopolitical context vis-a-vis -vis sexology and then uh, in the context of, uh, you know, that you've worked on in Tel Aviv where they find themselves you know, in the Ottoman Empire, in the middle and post-Ottoman world, in the Middle mm -hmm. East, it's a, it's a very different socio-political context. Can you uh, explain what happens with sexology as it moves from Germany to that region via these doctors? Uh, it's a good question because I, I think what happens to them is tragic, really, because in Weimar, Germany, they are part of a movement, a very progressive movement, a very exciting moment in which they believe in, until 33 they really don't know they're going to lose. So, uh, so they're part of this very progressive, very active, in which doctors are part of a political movement, a question of, uh, of abortion, a question of, um, of gay rights, uh, the question of uh, women who have ch uh, single mothers, women who have children outside yeah. of marriage, all of this, they are part of a movement to legitimize um, all of these. And now they come to the Middle East, they are stripped of many of their uh, qualifications, they don't speak the language, um, there's already uh, an established yeshuv um, profession, and they they're trying to figure out how to integrate. And I interviewed uh, two sons and one daughter of, of three of these uh, men, and, and there, there was a choice they had to make, how to um, reinvent themselves in the new environment. And two of them managed to uh, reinvent themselves and integrate into uh, the medical profession, and they did that by um, making it into making sexology into a normative, uh, normalizing project that is advising couples how to um, how to lead a better sexual life within marriage, how to advise um, people who feel the urge to masturbate, how to control their own urges, um, to tell telling. Um, woman who uh, who feels repulsed by by men that she should overcome it if she wants to have a baby and so on and so forth um so these are these are discourses that are less prevalent or kind of absent in the german context but in the context of sort of the um, sort of emerging nationalism and you know in tel aviv for example these kind of normalizing discourses rise to the fore, or are those also happening in Germany? I think they are also happening yeah. in, in Germany, but the people who were at the forefront of this radical um, sexology are coming to, uh, to Palestine and have to reinvent themselves. One of the examples is Felix Teilhaber. Felix Teilhaber is writing in the first decade of the 20th century that the solution to the Jewish problem is intermarriage. Okay, that the Jewish race should be eliminated through intermarriage. 
He ended up immigrating to Palestine six weeks after the book burning of the Hirschfeld Institute in 1933. And I talked with his son, and I asked him, how does a man who, who's so radically anti-Zionist and anti-any Jewish nationalism is immigrating to Palestine? And his, um, his answer almost broke my heart. He said, well, I was born when my father was 50 when I was growing up, he was this irrelevant old man. And when I asked myself this question, he was no longer around. So I don't have an answer to that. Uh. But this is an ans- uh, This is a, a question of, of mm. people who were at the very elite of their profession. Uh, and they came to Palestine and were marginalized. Some of them were unemployed or underemployed. Mm. Um, so one way was to fit into this normalizing project. So there's sort of a choice between serving the needs of the state, which are kind of, or the emerging nationalist movements, which mm-hmm. are kind of not what was being brought forth in Germany or kind of moving to the margins, basically. Yes. Wow. You didn't have much of a choice, I think. So how does that compare to what you see in Egypt then um, in the same period? I mean, uh, you know, obviously... Doctors, Egyptian doctors, are trained both in Egypt and in and in Europe, and then they come back. Do they have the same kind of, um, uh, you know, transformation, if you will? Well, it's different because you have a medical school in Egypt from the eighteen twenties, so you don't have to go to Europe in order to get your medical education, but you do have texts, and you you read the text and you pick and choose. And some of these texts are translated to Arabic, and some of these texts are translated to um, to, uh, to Arabic or discussed or authored originally. And um, and you can find texts that echo, especially Faraj Fakhri, who's talking about, he has a book that's called uh, the Ardof al-Tanasuli, which somebody translated as impotence, uh, sexual weakness, but it should be translated as perversion, okay, mm. sexual perversion, because the, all the, the entire book is not about impotence, but around about different variations of human sexuality. So you could live in, in Cairo in the 1920s and 30s and read about these sexual diversity, uh, and you have it elsewhere as well. The place in which I find similarity is the question and answer columns, in which, which are as normalizing as, as the Jewish ones. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that, because this is a really interesting piece of your research, was that it's mm-hmm. not about only about the circulation of these ideas among these mm-hmm. elites, you know, these mm-hmm. intellectuals, but also kind of how these ideas were received, um, you know, by the readers of uh, these people's texts or potentially by the people who were involved in, you know, um, seeking treatment, for example. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what are, what are the responses of the populations in these, um, in these different locations? So there are many questions that people send to, uh, to, to the journals. And there are columns both in Cairo and Tel Aviv in which medical doctors reply to, um, to readers' questions. And these questions are very diverse. They, people ask about um, all sorts of questions around their er- erection and around masturbation, 
um, and around uh, venereal disease and symptoms, um, about be, uh, preventing um, pregnancy and about getting pregnant, which, uh, to my mind, is indic an indication that there was that there were people who were interested in um, in disciplining themselves the way that this emerging medical discourse uh, could offer. So people were writing to the editors and asking what to do with the fact that I wake up with erection every morning. Um, what do I do um, if I'm uh, still in love with the girl I was I studied with at the girls' school, and now she's going to marry a man, and we we're going to be separated. People expected the doctors to have replies to such. So, questions. in some ways, this new knowledge kind of either produces or brings out anxieties and concerns that people are having at this moment mm -hmm. um, about their intimate lives and mm -hmm. kind of bringing that out into the public and making it a matter of, um, you know, discussion and treatment. And then, as you say, self-discipline, mm -hmm. which is pretty fascinating. You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other material related to the history of the Ottoman Empire in the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, and I'm here today with Chris Grayton and Dr. Liat Kozma talking about uh, issues about sexology and the science of sex in Hebrew and Arabic uh, in the early 20th century. So um, one kind of pressing question that I have following up mm -hmm. on our previous conversation is uh, how how this new emerging knowledge of sexology, the science of sex, treats men and women's bodies or sexualities or intimate lives differently. Um, is there a way in which the kind of discipline, disciplining or, or normalizing process here is gendered? It's a good question. Um, I don't know about Germany itself because in Germany you have the um, uh, sexual reform movement and the notion that um, destigmatizing uh, women's uh, sexuality or um, extramarital sexuality, premarital sexuality, which is something you don't have in the Middle East, fr from what I saw, uh, from what when I When you read. say in the Middle East, you mean both in Hebrew both writings in Hebrew, as well Arabic? Yes. So I didn't see it in uh, Arabic or Hebrew. The um, legitimate sexuality for women is only within marriage. Um, and if a woman gets um, pregnant before, without marriage, the reply would be, so convince him to marry you. At least the child will be born inside of marriage and you can divorce him later. Uh, so, and women don't write, to, first of all, most of the doctors in Arabic, all of the doctors are, are men. And uh, the the writers would be, the writers to the magazines would be both men and women, but mostly men. In the Hebrew case, you have both uh, women and men. And then with men, it's the anxiety over over what I called in the, one of the articles, the economy of the sperm. What happens to my sperm if I don't use it properly? What happens to my body if I don't use my sperm mm. properly? So it's around 
notions of self-restraint and masculinity. With women, I found one case in Hebrew about female uh, masturbation, and then the, uh, even the letter itself is not published, uh, just the uh, doctor replying that you should not beat up your girl, your daughter for masturbating. Uh, it would achieve only the opposite effect. Uh, you should be mu much more gentle with her. And that's it. And that's the only hint I have about it. But I, what I find interesting, both in the case of a girl who fell in love with her girlfriend and uh, in this case of masturbation, is that even though these practices are being condemned, they're still being mentioned and discussed in the newspaper. And when I think about female readers and male readers, they get to see that they're not alone, even though it might be stigmatized, even though it's being um, presented in a negative light in the paper. Right. So there's they're sort of um, seeing and hearing about things that uh, weren't previously discussed in a way. Yes. And also the this format of letters to the editor makes them think, well, there's somebody like me who's, it's not only the authoritative voice of the doctor, it's the somebody like them, even fictitiously. Uh, I think that some of them were translated from English or German. Um, but even if it's not fictitious, still they get to see that there's somebody like them who does the same thing and maybe they're not alone. We could see how this genre of writing in some respects, continues to the present day in mm. various forms, whether like rela relationship columns or love mm -hmm. columns, probably called a lot of different things in a lot of different times and places. But when, when I hear the word sexology, I, I'm, I'm hearing the name of a science that I feel like is no longer part of uh, the main sciences we talk about today. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's become something else, but it's definitely not a word that I think is part mm -hmm. of our present sciences, even though it's born in a time period when a lot of other sciences that are very widely, I guess, widely regarded as uh, scientific endeavors today. It, it's born in that time period, yet we don't have it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when you were talking about what happens to uh, Jewish doctors from Germany in the the context of, I guess, Mandate Palestine, mm -hmm. how they don't, there's no place for sexology there, mm -hmm. really. They're no longer sexologists. They become like ordinary family doctors, we could mm -hmm. call them. I'm wondering if there's not some tension between sexology as it emerged in Germany and, and rising nationalism of the early 20th century. Could you mm -hmm. maybe talk about the connection there? Or, Well, we can say that national, national socialism is targeting sexology. So when sexology is reborn by Kinsey in the 50s, it's another form of mm. sexology. It's not this very liberal, open-minded, uh, progressive uh, sexology. So, When you say targeting sexology, what do you mean? As national socialism is yes, against yes, sexology. Yes, what happens... May I go back two sure. steps? Uh, I started this research with a book by Magnus Hirschfeld, who was one of the founders of German sexology. Now, he's doing a world tour in the... Um, he started in late '31. And he ends up in, he visits uh, Egypt in uh, early 32 and then is coming to the issue in, in Palestine and he has the interesting observations about Zionism. When he 
wants to go back to Germany in um, late 32. His friends tell him he, he'd better not. And when the Nazis come to power a few months later, the first place they target is his Institute of Sexology uh, in Berlin. And one of the famous uh, book burning scenes, uh, pictures that we know is from the Institute of Sexology because the sexology is considered to be is associated with Jewish um, perversion uh-huh. and with, uh, with communism. And therefore... Sexology, if we want to ask ourselves why sexology disappears around that time, is that because the center, the, what gave it its, um, what gave, the, gave it its tone, what gave it its spirit, is literally burned to the ashes in, in 33. Hirschfeld is not allowed to return to, um, to Germany. Uh, his friends either flee uh, Germany or um, just reinvent themselves. One of them, by the way, is Ludwig Lanzlevi, who ends up as a, as a plastic surgeon in Cairo. Who also He's also Jewish. So here, the death of sexology in Germany itself starts with national uh, socialism. But then I think... In the case of Zionism, yes, they were not relevant. They were not useful to the national project. What's useful about abortion rights? What's useful about de- decriminalization of homosexuality mm-hmm. in, a, in a nation that exactly needs to prove mm-hmm. it, itself and others that Jewish men are not winklings mm. and are not perverts? Uh-huh. So sexology came to be associated with Jewish perversion and this is something that neither the Germans nor the Zionists wanted. I see. So it's a symbol of reproductive weakness, actually. To, I mean, even though sexology is concerned with reproduction, which is at the center of every national project during mm-hmm. this time period, uh, because it has this, I guess, uh, what you were saying, a progressive approach to the issue of sex and reproduction mm-hmm. to, to acknowledge and legitimize things that were considered weakness or perversion, that's why it falls by the wayside, I guess, is marginalized within intellectual yes. movements within Zionism, for example. Yes. And is that story the same for, for, you know, we have the same thing going on in Egypt with nationalism, of course. So mm-hmm. where, what role do these doctors play in Egypt? I mean, I don't know what happens to them um, after the 30s. Uh, maybe the gap between what happens in the text of Faraj Fakhri and, um, and other doctors and what happens in question and answer columns is is one key. What the national project needs is masculine men, not mm. men who accept their perversion and are open to experimentation and all these kind of things that Fauj Fakhri is talking about, scientifically, of course, mm-hmm. but still not in a negative tone, in a neutral mm. one. Um, which is something he himself expresses in his book, how misunderstood he is, how much the, the Egyptian society is not ready to accept his, his radical ideas. Uh, so what happens to them later, I, I really can't tell.
Uh, so Dr. Kuzma, we'd like to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, you know, especially in a moment, uh, you know, this is this is Pride Week. Um, the American Supreme Court has just come out with a major decision about gay marriage. Uh, it seems only right that we sit down today to think about um, the sort of politics of thinking about sex and the body and intimate life um, as these kind of issues are ongoing uh, in structuring, you know, not uh, not only our political, but also our social lives. Yeah, and we should we should mention for our listeners that we we just are coming on the heels of the the pride parade in, in Istanbul, which is an annual celebration normally goes quite smoothly, but today was met with a little pushback from the, the police. So I mean That's right. It's very apropos of today's uh experience. Today's events Professor to Cosmo. be to be talking about these issues in another time. Um so uh thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And for our listeners who want to find out more, um I invite you to check out uh, a bibliography um of works related to this podcast um that will be up on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. I also encourage you to check out our Facebook page uh, where you can join our 20,000 followers, um, keep up with the latest content and ask questions um, and, and interact with other people interested in Ottoman history. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Until then, take care. <laughs>